please open it to Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking, I'm going to read Ephesians 3, verses 7 through 13, but the text today is verses 10 through 13, but it provides more context of what we're talking about. So last week we looked at verses 7 through 9 and, and kind of answered the question of what does a pastor do? Well, now we're going to be looking at what does the church do? What is our responsibility? And this continues in Paul's kind of long digression of being following a chain of thought, and we're going to circle next week into an ending prayer before we make a big transition for the rest of the book of Ephesians. So turn now your attention to the reading of God's Word, beginning in Ephesians 3, verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the manifold wisdom of God that you have given us in your scripture. Your inerrant, infallible trustworthy and true word that has been passed down to us for our holiness, for our sanctification, for our salvation. It tells us the grand love story you have had with your people, the love of your son, Jesus Christ, who has made all of it possible. May this word take deep root in our hearts today, Father. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. I'm going to say up front, my intro is a little long, but I, I'm pretty sure it's worth it. Just going to say it up front. But, because it's going to be historical. So at the 1910 General Assembly, that's the big gathering of all Presbyterians, of the Northern Presbyterian churches, there is a great disturbance. Three ministers had been ordained by the Presbytery of New York who would not affirm the virgin birth. The men were not charged by the General Assembly. No trial was had, but instead they asked a committee to prepare a statement that would govern all future ordinations. And the statement prepared declared that there were five doctrines that were necessary and essential to the Christian faith. Inspiration of Scripture, the virgin birth, atonement for sin through the cross, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and historical reality of miracles. Now, these five propositions became known as the five fundamentals. And the the theological conservatives who rallied around these fundamentals became known as fundamentalists. And these fundamentalists, or fundamentals, had a far-reaching influence in American Christianity. What we if you're, you might think fundamentalist and think a certain type of you know, Baptist or uh, very hardcore um, Mennonite or Presbyterian, people that don't, you know, uh, Pentecostals even, that 
really pull themselves back from the world. That's, that's what they've grown into. Originally, a fundamentalist was a person who held to these fundamental core doctrines. But if you want to understand how far-reaching the influence of the fundamentals were and the fundamentalists, these five doctrines are painted on a wall in the basement of our church, labeled a brief outline of the faith. They had a massive impact on the American Christianity. Now, I share that part to provide context for this next part. Because yesterday, a hundred years ago yesterday, on Sunday, May 21st, 1922, a Baptist minister serving as stated supply at the historic First Presbyterian Church in New York City preached a sermon titled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? This sermon may be one of the most consequential in American history. It spread across the United States thanks to John D. Rockefeller, who was so moved by this sermon preached by a man named Henry Emerson Fosdick that he had 130,000 copies of the sermon printed, and he sent one, supposedly, to every pastor in America. Now, Fosdick helped spread liberal theology and piety, but in so doing, he hardened conservative and orthodox resistance to the very message he preached. And if you want to understand why it was so consequential, why it was so troubling, why it was so electrifying, let me read you just a small part of it. This is what Fosdick preached in a Presbyterian pulpit in 1922. It is interesting to note where the fundamentalists are driving their stakes in the ground regarding doctrine around the church across which no one is to pass except on terms of agreement. They insist that we must all believe in the historicity of certain special miracles, preeminently the virgin birth of our Lord, that we must believe in a special theory of inspiration, that the original documents of the scripture, which of course we no longer possess, were inerrantly dictated to men a good deal as a man might dictate to a stenographer and that we must believe in a special theory of the atonement, that the blood of our Lord shed in a substitutionary death placates an alienated deity and makes possible welcome for the returning sinner, and that we must believe in the second coming of our Lord upon the clouds of heaven to set up a millennium here as the only way in which God can bring history to a worthy denouement. Such are some of the stakes which are being driven to mark a deadline of doctrine around the church. If a man is a genuine liberal, his primary protest is not against holding these opinions, although he may well protest against their being considered, considered the fundamentals of Christianity. This is a free country, and anybody has a right to hold these opinions, or any others, if he is sincerely convinced of them. The question is, has anybody a right to deny the name Christian to those who differ with him on such points? and to shut against them the doors of the Christian fellowship. Now, that was a little bit longer than the snippet, but in that one paragraph, we see him deny the five fundamentals that the Presbyterians 12 years prior had said, these are important, these are necessary and essential. But he wasn't, Fosdick wasn't simply advocating and preaching a negative gospel, an abandonment of orthodoxy. He was much more concerned with the view and the role of the church in the 20th century. What is the church supposed to do? 
and he was preaching at a very interesting time in American history. It's 1922. We won World War I, the war to end all wars. The stock market is booming. Nations are celebrating. Advances in technology are happening at a unknown, previously unknown rate. Men are flying in the air. Little did they know, with all this optimism, that the Depression was six years away and World War II was just in, off in the distance in a couple decades. Fosdick was concerned with what the church of his time was putting her energy and witness into. As he later said in his sermon, the educated people are looking for their religion outside the churches. He was concerned that these fundamentalists were too obsessed with doctrine and with archaic sayings and old books. They weren't going to be relevant. They had no message to impact the world. He was concerned about what should the church be and do. Paul provides us with the answers to Fosdick's question and worries. Much like he did last week when we asked, what does a pastor do? Our verses today shows us what the church does. The church makes known the manifold wisdom of God, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the Christian, the individual Christian's future state. So how does the church make known this manifold wisdom of God? Paul spent most of chapter 2 and chapter, even part of chapter 3, telling the Ephesians what the church is, right? We are a new man, he says. We are a new temple of Jew and Gentile knit together in Jesus Christ, who is our cornerstone. And now he tells them what they are to do as the church is to make the manifold wisdom of God known. And the word here that the Greek uses, this manifold, means of many different colors or much variegated. And one commentator who was translating this, uh, translated this phrase this way, he said it's the beautifully complex wisdom of God. And try to get at this. Maybe you've seen in a science class or at a museum, a science museum, uh, light go through a prism. It starts off as just a beam of light that you can't see. When it hits the prism, the beam, the light bends, and all of a sudden it pulls out the many hues and different colors that are in just a single beam of light. You see reds and blues and purples. You see the depth of what you previously couldn't see. You just saw it as a beam, you just saw it as illumination. And the prism pulls out the depth, the manifold beauty of that one beam of light. The manifold wisdom of God is beautifully complex. And Paul is saying that the church is tasked with telling the manifold wisdom of God. Now, we would say our faith, I think most of us would say, is pretty simple, right? We can, we can tell the gospel story pretty simply. We're, we're, we have sinners. We violated God's law. God has made a way for us to be right with him through his son, Jesus Christ, who he sent for us, who died on the cross for us, who died the death we deserved. He didn't stay dead, though. He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And when he returns, he will rule uh, forever, and we will rule with him. That can be simple. Maybe we have some questions to answer along the way with somebody wanting to hear the story. But the, but the faith is much deeper than that. There is a manifold, beautiful wisdom to it. Think about what we went through with the church. 
this wisdom that was a mystery that Jews and Gentiles are reconciled in Christ. And so because of this, everybody who is at enmity with one another, all ethnicities, races, when they are united in Jesus Christ, the enmity dies. That's a powerful bit of wisdom that the world has been trying to solve since we've existed and fought one another. It's reconciled in Christ through God's family and covenant. Think about the depth and the beauty and the mystery of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. While it's a simple story to tell, it never gets old. There's always something from his teaching that strikes our hearts and illumines our minds. There's something that we reflect on in his death and the horrors he faced for us that meet us when we are struggling with terrors and affliction. And then there's the hope and the mystery and the beauty of his resurrection and the promise that the power, as we saw in Ephesians 2, that was at work in raising him from the dead is the power that's at work in you, in your life, raising you from dead in sin and will raise you from death of death into new life. And then there's all the theological topics that keep seminary theologians employed, talking, you know, explaining things like the two natures of Jesus Christ, the, hap- the hypostatic union, predestination, questions of creation, all the ology words, eschatology, ecclesiology, martiology, all these things. The manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church. It's why in our tradition we place such an emphasis on catechesis and instruction. It's why we charge parents to take responsibility for that. It's why we have them as our standards of theology so that when we have these questions, we have people who have thought about them ahead of us, and we encourage you to go to them, and they will point you right back to Scripture. That's all they're supposed to do. But we aren't always supposed to be drinking the milk of Christian faith. We need meat to grow. We need the proteins to grow strong. In God's manifold wisdom, his gospel goes through the church. And this is why you can't just have the me and Jesus faith that seems really popular right now and and probably has been before, right? We are not solo Christians. There's no such thing. To be a Christian is part of God's family. And, And to help bring that all together. I talked about the catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, says that there are certain benefits that we have as members in the visible church gathered here today, that we get to be under God's special care, that we're protected and preserved in all ages, that we enjoy the communion of saints. Our fellowship, like we had last Saturday at the Goods, is a good benefit. The ordinary means of salvation and the offers of grace by Christ to all of its members as a ministry of the gospel. And that we get the privilege of testifying that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. Those are all benefits. Those are all the manifold wisdom that we get to share in and proclaim to the world as our task as the church. And it's no wonder that within a few sentences of declaring the manifold wisdom of God, Paul breaks out into doxology At the end of chapter 3, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ 
that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What surpasses all knowledge? It's the manifold wisdom of God that we ultimately experience in knowing Christ. And the church makes known the person of, and work of Christ. That's what verses 11 and 12 say. Look at them with me. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So we see that Jesus was always the plan, right? He was always the eternal purpose. The great story of redemption in the garden began with this promise to the woman that her offspring would stomp the head of the serpent. He was always the plan. And remember the opening eulogy, too, from Ephesians 1. You don't have to turn there. But blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The church is properly functioning as the church when she makes known the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we see that that's what Paul emphasizes about Jesus in all of his epistles, but definitely here in Ephesians, right? God adopts us through Jesus Christ. God redeems us through the blood of Christ. God forgives us by the grace through Jesus Christ. God seals us with his Holy Spirit because of Jesus Christ. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but we are saved because of Jesus Christ. We have good works prepared for us to walk in because of Jesus Christ. The beginning and end of our faith, the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church, and the eternal purpose of it is to point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And his work gives us something. It's not just knowledge, right? In verse 12, he said, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Boldness and access to what? To God the Father. The word boldness here means speaking without fear. The access that we have, the confident access that we have, is that because he has died and his blood has atoned for every race, we now can come into the Holy of Holies. What before was forbidden for anybody to come into, except for one high priest, is now made accessible because we had the best high priest, Jesus Christ, go into the Holy of Holies, sanctify it for all time, and now turns around to us and says, come in. Come experience God the Father. Come to him now, no longer as a son and daughter of disobedience, but as a son and daughter of him, of his family, of his kingdom. You have that type of access when you are part of God's family. That is the promise to you who have proclaimed faith in Jesus Christ. So when we gather as a church, we don't come to be entertained. We don't come to hear, you know, comforting words that we just want to hear about our lives. I don't come to church to hear how I can make my life better. I don't come to church to be told how to redeem the world or creation. I do not come to church to learn what I have to do in order to be right with God. I come to church to hear how Christ has saved me, 
I come to hear how Christ is redeeming all of creation, and I'm invited to participate in it. I come to church to hear that Christ's death and resurrection is what makes me right with God. Nothing, no works I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Great hymn, pulled right from what we just read earlier in Ephesians. I come to church because it is here that the manifold wisdom of the ages is revealed, not through my feeble preaching, but through the person of Jesus Christ, who I declare from the word of God that has been given to us. If a church is not making much of Christ, it is not much of a church. Fosdick was worried that the church was, fa- was failing in her duties because they weren't educating the Christians in the things of the world. He was worried that the church was becoming anti-intellectual and anti-modern by emphasizing things to him that were so abhorrent, like the work of Christ on the cross as forgiveness of sins. Sin was outdated as a personal moral issue. It doesn't need to be dealt with. There were greater concerns of his time. There were deeper anxieties facing the modern person. What could an ancient book obsessed with blood and wrathful deities offer to the modern man? And we continue to live in that world. We have things that Fosdick never dreamed of. We have an entire encyclopedia of world knowledge in our palms. Forget flying in the skies. We've sent men to the moon and have explored the depths of space with satellites. We have had massive advances in medicine since his day. We have definitely seen the world improve, despite the fact that since his time, there's been another world war, there's been other wars after that, and we continue to fight even to this day. Maybe we are not the saviors we thought we would be, because the world is still not perfect. In Fosdick's mind, the reason he preached about the coming of Jesus Christ as something that seemed weird to him was because At this time, he genuinely thought the world was going to so improve that we would reach this utopian state and basically do all the work for God and just kind of hand it over to him. Look at what we did. We made it easy for you to come back. That's not what Revelation says. That's not what Jesus is telling his disciples about what his return will be like. We we need his help. We pray for his return because we keep mucking it up. We are not wise. So I don't need to come to church, and the church doesn't need to tell people how to make their lives better, what to do, how to solve world hunger, how to create the best economic policy, how to vote in the right person that will solve all your problems, because that's not what our task is. Our task is to preach and point to the person who will solve your ultimate problem, your death, your ultimate problem, your sin, your ultimate problem, your alienation from God is solved in Jesus Christ. And if a church isn't preaching that, isn't making much of the manifold wisdom of God to create disciples like that, then it's not much of a church. He alone will lead us into a future that God has already prepared. And that's my final point, that he leads us. The church makes known the future of the Christian, which is glory. Now this point will be slightly brief, so let's look at verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul returns once again to his sufferings. 
He is so concerned with telling the story and making known this manifold wisdom of God that he's not really paying attention to the fact that his wrists are still in chains. He's a man on a mission to declare Jesus Christ. And it's because of that gospel mandate to declare him that he's now in prison. What can be glorious about those circumstances? Now, a confession. I'm pretty sure it was last Sunday. It may have been the Sunday before. I I closed with a line from Jonathan Edwards. I was wrong. It was not Jonathan Edwards. It was way off by a couple centuries. His name's Randy Alcorn. He's still very much alive. But the line was this. This world is the closest to heaven unbelievers will ever know. And the closest to hell God's children will ever know. This is part of the manifold wisdom of of God, that this world is not our end or our home. Some of us have hard lives, have lives of trials and toils and snares. We've got brothers and sisters in Christ all throughout the world that are under threat of, of their livelihood if they gather to worship or if they preach or if they're caught with a Bible. We have saints that we love and know who have just had a hard life, and they continue to be faithful, and that amazes us. But we are not promised a peaceable life following the gospel. We're, we're given peace to get through a hard life. All of us will experience something at some point in our lives. Every one of us at some point is going to experience decaying in our bodies. A strange sensation that I've discovered starts around the age of 32, when you wake up and you wonder why something's hurting, you didn't do anything the day before. But It's because this isn't our home. These trials, the decay, the pain, they don't follow us in the age to come. Glory is our future. And we get tastes of it here. That's why Paul's saying the suffering that I'm experiencing for you, it's it's for your glory. These trials that you may also be experiencing or will, they won't last forever. And they give you and point you towards the glory that is to come When we receive love here and when we give love, we get tastes of glory. When we receive mercy and give mercy, we receive and taste future glory. When we witness beauty in the world, when we gather together for the Lord's Supper, all of that is a foretaste for the age to come. As usual, C.S. Lewis vividly captures this biblical idea in the last battle which is the last book of the Narnia series, when the last king of Narnia finally reaches Aslan's country after his last battle, Lewis writes, and this is what the king experiences, he sees seven kings and queens stood before him, all with crowns on their heads and all in glittering clothes. But the kings wore fine mail as well as had their swords drawn in their hands. And Tyrion bowed courteously and was about to speak when the youngest of the queens laughed. He stared at her face and then gasped with amazement, for he knew her. It was Jill. But not Jill as he had last seen her, with her face all dirt and tears, and an old dress half slipping off one shoulder. Now she looked cool and fresh, as fresh as if she had just come from bathing. And at first he thought she looked older, but then didn't, and he could never make up his mind on that point. And then he saw that the youngest of the kings was Eustace. But he also was changed as Jill was changed. And Tyrion suddenly felt very awkward about coming among these people with the blood and dust and sweat of battle still on him. 
Next moment, he realized that he was not in that state at all. He was fresh and cool and clean and dressed in such clothes as he would have worn for a great feast at Care Paravel. But in Narnia, your good clothes were never your uncomfortable ones. This is what we make known to the world. The future glory that awaits you. That the, the death and decay and blood and sweat and dirt from the battle you face in life is not what you will be. And when you get there, you will be as unrecognizable but recognizable, right? That's what Tyrion Lewis was saying through Tyrion. He recognizes people. Heaven is going to be a place where we see each other, okay? Let's just dispel any myths that we're not going to like know each other. But there will be a beauty to it where I will see you and I'll see, I'll recognize you, but you are so much more beautiful, so much more holy and perfect because we have all the sin removed. We have all the decay removed. And that is our hope. That is the glory that awaits us. And our job on this earth is to proclaim the way to that glory. It's Jesus Christ. We're pilgrims passing through, calling out others to join in our train as we head towards glory where we will face Jesus Christ and know him completely. I want to close by returning to Fosdick. How should we as Bible-believing Christians mark the 100th anniversary of such a consequential sermon? We certainly don't want to celebrate it, but we may mark it by heeding all that he said and mark when others in our day, in pulpits, which certainly is happening, begin to, uh, to sound a lot like Fosdick. When they start to say things like, we need to be relevant, let's stop abiding by this part of Scripture. We need to reach people, let's stop preaching about Jesus and start helping, you know, come up with a community organization plan to pass some law. Thankfully, we can mark it by remembering that Fosdick didn't get the last word. Like I said, remember, Rockefeller sent 130,000 copies of the sermon out. It was like a tweet, very long tweet for people who had to get in the mail, but people still got it, and they responded. One of them was Reverend Clarence McCartney, who was a very influential conservative, a fundamentalist by Fosdick's terms, and he wrote uh, or did, gave a sermon that then he printed and shared called, Shall Unbelief Win? And in it, he powerfully proclaimed the manifold wisdom of God, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the future of the Christians. And I'll close with his words about what the church is to do at this hour, for they are as true then, for they were as true then as they are now, and they are certainly as needed now as they were then. Here's what McCartney preached. There is a great discussion in the pulpit and out of it as to what the church is to do or not to do. The state of opinion on this subject is singularly chaotic at present. But with all the diversity of opinion as to the work of the church, there seems to be a pretty general agreement as to the one thing which the church is not to do. Whatever the church is to do or not to do, it is not to defend the faith. It is not to point out the errors and inconsistencies of those who stand as the interpreters of Christianity. This amazing agreement would have struck the Christian believers of almost any age in church history, save our own, as a very extraordinary one. The writer of this article dissents entirely from this popular view. 
that when a Christian man hears or reads an utterance of Christian teachers and leaders which he believes to be irreconcilable with the gospel, the thing to do is nothing. Certainly, this is not the course followed by those who are blasting at the rock of ages and consciously or unconsciously adulterating distinctive New Testament Christianity with conclusions and vagaries of this world's life and thought. I do not believe in letting them hold the field all to themselves. I believe that in this day, one of the greatest contributions that a man can make to the success of the gospel is to contend earnestly and intelligently and in a Christian spirit, but nevertheless contend for the faith. Make known the manifold wisdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ, pointing saints to their future glory. That is the purpose of the church. That is the purpose that Paul set down, inspired, as Fosdick said, as inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words that, you, that are for your benefit today, that have been for the church's benefit throughout all ages. Because the Bible is inerrant. The Bible is true. It is wisdom. And it points to the person who is wisdom incarnate, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that you have given us the words of Scripture and the word incarnate. That you have given us uh, the word that you gave Moses, that you gave Paul, that you gave the prophets that you gave your son, and that you've given us your son. May we grow deeper in the knowledge of of your word and theology. May we grow deeper out of that in our acts of mercy and our love for others. But may we grow ultimately in the knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, which surpasses all things. May that be the task of our church. May that be the task of the church throughout all the ages. May we be be faithful to that mandate. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Would you now please stand as we sing our closing hymn, hymn 347, The Church's One Foundation.